Matthew 23. Jesus has thwarted every attempt of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Herodians to entrap him. It's been a very hostile journey. And yet Jesus presses on towards the cross knowing that this is what he has been sent to do. Um, God became flesh, not thinking of himself but of his creation to redeem mankind. He paid the price for our sins in a way that we could never understand completely and yet in a way that was so efficient that no one can ever boast of ever coming on their own merit, their own uh, righteousness, but everybody comes on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he gets all the glory. And so it's an amazing thing what God has done. Um, he has been faithful to his office as king, priest, and prophet, as he rode into Jerusalem, as he cleansed the temple, as he now will proclaim um, the judgment over Jerusalem at the end of the chapter. All three offices. No one ever occupied those three. There were men who were kings and prophets. There were um, priests who were prophets, but no one ever held all three offices. That was reserved for Jesus Christ. And so now with a broken heart, Jesus pronounces judgment of the leaders as soon and soon thereafter at the end, the city of Jerusalem. This morning we covered the first 12 verses. I would encourage you to get that in depth if you weren't here. We will do general commentary through it. Here now, verse 1 through 12, you have the words of Jesus to the multitude and disciples. It is still Tuesday of Passion Week. It's been a long day. And now in verse 1 and 2, Jesus turns to speak now to a different audience then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. And um, he turns away from the religious people. The religious people are still there. The Pharisees are there. The scribes are there. And the multitudes there. And the disciples are there. And Jesus just turns from one to the other as we move through this chapter. And he deals with them individually. Um, in verse 2, Jesus affirmed the position of these rulers, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. The seat of Moses was that which God gave him authority for. There wasn't mean that literal seat, but in the authority of the place of teaching. God raised Moses up for Moses to teach and instruct the people. And it was God's word. And he trained judges and all that so they could uh, oversee smaller matters. Well, these individuals here now had literally sat themselves in this seat. They're corrupt. They really don't belong there. But they hold the power and the authority over the people. The people look up to them. But they're not what they appear to be. Um, they represented the law. But... And in a corrupt way. And yet this authority came from the time of Ezra, as we said this morning, from the great synagogue after the Babylonian captivity. Ezra was already scribe. And um, he began to train people to protect the law. But their traditions and their 
interpretations of the Talmud, the Mishnah, everything else became worshipped and put in a higher priority because it was protecting the law. So they began to worship their traditions and that and really were contradicting and ignoring the law. Um, and so these men, 400 years later, though they are still in that line, that line has become corrupted. And if you know anything about life, if you've lived in for any length of time, you know that anything that exists long enough has the potential and will usually become corrupt. Unless there is a diligence with one's relationship to God and to walk in the Spirit and to be subject to Him, mankind corrupts and pollutes himself in every way possible. Where there is no restraint by God, then there is only destruction. Um, in verse 3, we have the biblical principle, observe what the scriptures do not, uh, what they do. They, they, they were just uh, uh, teaching, but they weren't observing. It says, therefore, whatever they tell you to, um, tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. It's a durative present. They keep on um, not doing. And yet, Jesus says, now they're sitting in the authority of Moses. They teach corruptly. They teach according to their traditions and that. But when they teach the word, you obey the word of God. The word of God is not corrupt. He is not saying obey their corrupt teaching and interpretations. And this is something that you as a Christian have to understand also. When you sit under a teacher or a preacher, wherever you go or wherever you fellowship regularly or whoever you listen to over the radio, that you'll be able to drop the plumb line of the Word of God and that you are able to say this man is teaching the Word in his context or not. And if it, he's teaching stupidity and heresy, turn him off or get up and walk out. Don't just sit there. If the Lord leads you to talk to him, do it meekly, humbly, in love, asking the questions you need. But if he doesn't want to answer them, then get up and walk out. It's real simple. You need to be the judge over your own life by the word of God. And you cannot hold anybody in higher authority than the word of God. My authority is limited by the word. Your authority is limited by the word. Very important. Verse 4 says they burden men with their traditions without helping them, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And so they love just piling on these um traditions and interpretations and everything, laying a burden on these people. A uh, picture of a, a donkey or a camel being overloaded mercilessly. And yet, these Pharisees and scribes, they, they wouldn't even lift one finger to help these individuals, let alone they being doers of what they are demanding on others. Now, this is nothing new. It happens in churches all the time. Pastors and leaders, they tell the people, do this and that, but they don't do anything about any of those same things. Before the people, they're one thing, and behind the people, they're something else. 
You know, one of the things in Israel is that their officers are the first to go to warfare. They, they lead their people. The soldiers follow. The shepherds are to lead. They're to be the example. Not to be in the back. Very important. We have um, made the ministry and ministers celebrities today. And um, the Bible tells me that ministers are nothing but glorified waiter boys. Deacons. Bond slaves. Called and anointed. Having a great accountability to God. As well as the people here having a great responsibility to live out what they've been taught. And so there is a marriage that goes on between the pew and the pulpit. Like any marriage, it takes time and commitment. It takes discipline. It takes the love of God. Because our flesh wants to rebel and do its own thing. And we need to align ourselves with the word of God so we can know the will of God. Now... Paul demonstrated the pastors were examples in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. Um, in Hebrews 13, 17, he speaks about submitting to those who are an example and, and, and esteem them highly. But again, the standard of pastors and elders and whoever is the word of God. If they are not living up to the word of God, then they disqualify themselves. It's just that simple. Read. Um, Timothy, First Timothy 3, Titus 1, all the qualifications are there. They are still required today. The majority of the churches ignore them. And the qualifications for a pastor is does he have degrees? Does, uh, you know, what, what kind of a uh, um, teacher is he? What kind of a speaker? And what can he motivate? And this and that. All kinds of stuff that have nothing to do with what God has called them to be. And so... Therefore, we have corporations rather than churches. We have organizations rather than organisms of the church. And uh, rather than Jesus adding to the church, men are very clever and very, um, very studious to see how they can plug up the back door. How they can attract people and how they can keep them. I wouldn't want to keep you if you don't want to be here. I just teach you the word of God and if God... Keeps bringing you, praise God. If not, Lord bless you, I'll see you in heaven. I can't hold you. I can't force you. We pray for you. We appreciate. We thank God for you. But you belong to God. But you need to pick a church just like you live in a home. You have many friends. You visit them, but you don't live at their house. You need to be committed to a church. Some people think they can go to this church and that church and once in a while. Um, I call them flakes. You don't just flop out anywhere. You belong somewhere. When a husband or wife are married, they have the same home. They don't say, well, I'm going to spend the weekend with my girlfriend or for a week or two months. I'll see you then. It doesn't go like that, right? There's a commitment. There's a discipline. God will direct and guide you, you to be committed to the Lord as he directs you. And so in verse 5, they love to be seen, these individuals. Jesus is unmasking these men. But all their works, 
they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge their borders of their garments. The phylacteries are little boxes on their forehead and the strap on their arm, on their heart, leading to their, the arm. Um, they have, um, on the forehead, they have four compartments. They had scriptures in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, the word of God close to their mind and their heart. The arm had four columns of seven lines. Um, some of you perhaps were in Israel with us and you saw them at the Wailing Wall. At the airport, you saw them too. They're the Orthodox Jews and their prayer. When they pray, they have these parts and they bob them up and down and everything else. But they're not even kind. They're looking around and you, know, and you see them on the airplane and everything else. Religious. Religious. Going through the motions. Self-righteousness. Your cords, your tassels, all that kind of stuff. And so here, the phylacteries, they enlarge them. They, you know, the little boxes, rather than little, they have these huge boxes that demonstrate how self-righteous they are and how righteous they are, which is really just self-righteousness. Um, the borders of their tassels, it was a square cloth over the robe, and at the corners you had blue tassels. To remind them of heaven and obeying the word of God. Numbers 15.38 and Deuteronomy 22.12. And the two in front, they would make real long and they would throw them over their shoulders. Again, all for show, all for display. You look at the world and, and you look at some of the fashion world. And you look at them coming down the runway and say, who in the world would wear that? People that have money. Who want to say, look at me. They, they don't think they look ridiculous. They just think they're the coolest people in the world because they can afford the stupidest clothes. It's all about self-righteousness. It's all about your perspective about who you are. They love prestige. Look at verse 6. They love the best seats at feasts. The best seats in the synagogue. These reclining couches. The left and the right hand next to the host. On the left you'd be able to see all the table that way. And the closer you can get up there, the more prestigious, the more authority, the more uh, hobnobbing you get. And who you can drop names on. Nothing new. It happens today, whether it be at work, whether it be at school, whether it be in the church. It's the same thing. If we don't walk in the spirit, then we will walk in the flesh and we will act out according to our nature, which is sinful, selfish, and carnal. There, there's no other option if you don't walk in the spirit. And so these um, best places, the best seats, the chief seats up in platforms in the synagogue. Men on one side, women on the other. They're all looking up here. You're in your best seat. And once again, if you sat in front and you were at a synagogue that was very popular, then, you know, they would associate you with that. And it's all this self-righteousness. And they have their phylacteries. They have their tassels. They have this affiliation. Uh, again, nothing new under the sun. Jesus, remember, it was his custom, Luke 4 tells us, for him to go around as he did to the synagogue of Nazareth and to teach. So he did this up and down the Galilee. And he personally observed all the self-righteousness of these Pharisees and scribes. The lording over the people of God. 
All this stuff that goes on. This is for every generation. And every nation. This is a warning, a caution. First to the pastors, then to the people. But it seems like people repeat the same old mistakes. And there's only one reason. Either they don't know the word of God. Or the flip side of that is they know it and they don't want to live it. One of the two. But it's the same coin. In verse 7, they love titles. Greetings in the marketplace and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And some people, um, again, there's nothing wrong with a, a, a doctorate degree or title. But if you're living for that, if this is what exalts you and makes you think that you're better than someone else, he's talking about an attitude here. And um, they just, you know, these leaders would go into the marketplace. They would scoop up the robes lest they would touch sinners. And uh, they would uh, parade themselves as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, praying in the marketplace, in the streets, in the corners, in the synagogues, whatever, making a show of themselves. You have the same thing if you turn on Christian television often. It looks like the circus is in town. Now, there are some good people, good teachers there, but the majority, it's, um, it's just a business for the most part. And uh, business is good. <laughs> and I just think, what does God think about? Well, the same thing Jesus did when he went to the temple. He just turned over the money changers and the tables and everything else. There is such a merchandising of God's people and always has been and always will be. So you're to be grounded to make sure that nobody merchandises you. That God is the one directing and guiding your life as to where you go, what you give, how much you give. And that you honor the Lord and that he's the one that is speaking to your heart. Not a pastor, not an elder, not another person. And when you do that, and if that pastor is listening to the Lord, God puts it all together. He adds to the church. He takes care of the finances. He opens the doors. He does the work. Because it's his church completely. Verse 8 through 12, the disciples of Christ. Now in contrast, he turns to them, but you. Now he focuses upon them. You. It's emphatic at the beginning of the sentence. Do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brothers. So, self-exaltation. Now he focuses on the twelve, because remember the twelve, they always had the interesting conversation about who was the greatest among them, right? It's recorded for us three times. They probably talked about it three thousand times. Two of the ten asked for the right hand, the left hand, brought their mommy along, and Jesus denied it. And when the two found out what the two wanted, they got ticked off of the two because the two beat the ten to it. The thirty dozen, all of them wanted to rule. They believed Jesus was going to Jerusalem, Luke nineteen eleven, to set up the kingdom. Even after the resurrection, they said, Will you now at this time set up the kingdom? He says, None of your business. He says, Just go tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. They never saw the church age, and they were not servants till after the day 
of Pentecost, once they were filled with the Spirit of God. And so, don't flaunt or lord your power or authority over others. Very simple principle. If you are great, and he'll finish up with this, you will be the servant of all. Now, the greatness of a person is not how many servants he has, it's how many people he serves. That's the greatness. Verse 9 says, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And so he's, in the previous verse, you're all brethren, so don't exalt yourself. Don't think that you're higher than somebody else. We're all at different levels in our learning, our growth, our maturity. But we should all be humble in esteeming others better than ourselves. And people often say, what do I call you? Just call me Xavier. Call me X, whatever it is. I'm not reverend. Don't ever call me reverend. Um, the only words appears for God, not a man. Okay? And yet here... Um, Jesus is speaking to his 12 because he knows their bent. He knows their sin nature like anybody else. Father is not a restriction against your father who begot you. It's a title for a spiritual guide, the one who you believe is the one. And uh, Jesus is saying here that he is the one. Not any pastor, regardless of how great or how loving or how faithful that pastor is. He's a servant of God and you should never worship him or depend on him 100%. You need to learn how to study the word of God. You need to tune your ear to God and you need to be attentive to his voice through his word. Very important. We thank God for godly men, but we do not worship them. We worship Jesus. And so, verse 9, not to call anybody Father. Uh, he is in heaven, and there's a vast difference. So, don't let anyone be your guide but Christ and, the, and his Father. Verse 10, and do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Um, and so, he is the one that has sent the Comforter. The Comforter instructs us illuminates us, convicts us um, of sin, righteousness, and justice. And he's the one that um, shows us things to come. Uh, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus gave that night the exposition on the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the silent witness of Jesus. He never speaks of himself. He never asks to the word. He never takes away from the word. And he just talks about Jesus. No one else. No one else. And so in verse 11, he says, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Pride leads to being abased and humility leads to exaltation, First Peter 5, 5 says. And God knows our hearts. He deals with us. In 12, he says, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus, again, is the primary example as he, being God, emptied himself of his glory, never of his deity. And he took on the form of a servant and he humbled himself, emptied himself of that. And he became obedient to the death of the cross, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And the word became flesh and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth in John 1, 1 and 14. 
And he didn't think it any to sit down and to come in John 13 and to wash feet. I've given you an example that you should serve one another. If, if you would walk around here and if you've been here for any length of time, you would have a hard time knowing who really the pastor, the head pastor is here. Unless you see me all the time. But all of us, we're best of friends. We do ministry. We do different things. There's, ministry is just fun. I, I can't believe God called me to do this for a living. You know, and sometimes leadership can get real weird because they exalt themselves against the people and they start the pecking order and pretty soon there's church splits and everything else and and it, it, it's just like the world. We've been together for years. Um, Mario and I have been together since we were 14 years old. We went to school together. It's amazing. The rest of the guys all were raised up from the ministry here. Uh, and God has done an incredible work. Many of you are in leadership. And it's the same with you. And we just, we just thank God for you as you walk with God, as you yield to Him, as you respond to Him. And you just become part of His church and obedient to Him. And it's just an amazing thing. We thank God for you all the time. Now, when you get to verse 13 to 36, you have the woes of Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees. So now, as they're in the backdrop there, now he turns away from the disciples. Now he turns right to the scribes and the Pharisees. They're fuming. They've been fuming. They're going to get fuming a little more now. Uh, the woes here are interjections of grief and denunciation. Um, proclaiming coming judgment. But it's with a broken heart. It's not just a proclamation, I'm going to get you, sucker. No. I mean, Jesus loves these guys. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9. He died for the whole world. God is very patient, as we'll see. He'll do everything he can, but sometimes people just reject, 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 like Pharaoh, harden their heart. And then there comes a line where God says, all right, I will honor your rejection. I will stiffen your heart. I will make it hard. I will respect your choice. Now, some people have a hard time with that. They say, well, why do God? Well, he's not going to force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to. He'll do everything he can to turn you, but he will not turn you against your will. Absolutely not. God will respect your choice. And so these woe judgments, the broken heart, there are eight woes. The Revised Standard Version has only seven. It omits verse 14, and that's not good. Okay? I believe that the King James, the New King James, the Texas Receptus is the correct text that we have. The RSV is Westcott and Hort. I reject that text. There are many omissions that are crucial, and I reject it. Seven times Jesus calls them hypocrites in this section, with the exception of verse 16. He calls them fools and blind two times in verse 17 and 19. Blind guys, once in verse 24. Serpents and brood of vipers in verse 23, once. 
These words are caustic. They're probably comparable to Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, against the leaders. So verse 13 through 15, the hindering of people to enter the kingdom of God, the first woe, 13. The stern rebuke is now turned to the scribes and Pharisees, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The word but marks the sharp contrast now between the disciples he was speaking to, the apostles, and now these leaders. The word woe again, the interjection of grief and denunciation. Even as the father who declares to his son or his daughter, you have to leave the house, have your bags packed by five o'clock. And this after long trials and testings and years of trying to work it out. There comes a point with a broken heart that a father and a mother says, get your bags and leave. This is the heart of God. Make no mistake about this. The word always has the idea of the burden of the Lord. It is a proclamation of coming judgment. But again, with a broken heart. The word hypocrite, hypocrites, it means an actor, a pretender. You get it from the theater, the two masks, the smile and the frown. They would act, they would have put a mask over their face, and that person was impersonating. They didn't think they were really that person, nor did the audience. They were impersonating someone, pretending to be someone else, okay? This is the word right here. Jesus will call them this seven times. The charge is stated, For you, shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. The word shut up to withhold, to obstruct um, the knowledge of God, to point people to God, that they might call upon God. The kingdom of heaven is the period of grace between the first and the second coming. When God has poured out his spirit and calling out and taking a bribe for himself. At the end of the fullness of the Gentile, the last person to be saved, the church will be raptured. The Antichrist will appear. The great tribulation will begin, the day of the Lord. First three and a half years will be false peace. The Antichrist will deceive, make a covenant with Israel. Daniel 9, 27, he will build the temple. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he will enter in, declare himself to be God, demand everybody have a mark on the right hand of their forehead. They cannot buy, they cannot sell. The woman, Israel, who gave birth to Christ, will understand her deception. She will flee to the wilderness, Revelation 12, 6, and God will protect her for three and a half years of great tribulation. And then when he returns with us for the second coming to fight the armies of the world and destroy them, he will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth and he will set up the kingdom after he judges the nations on their treatment to the Jew. Daniel, Matthew 24 and 25. We'll get there next time. Amazing. God is searching out a bride for himself. Very patiently. Not one person can wear the white gown he makes us whiter than snow by believing in what he has done for us. And we're saved by grace through faith. Now, the evil character of these men is declared, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. 
So they're not really interested, these religious rulers. They're pretenders, fakes. And they don't even care about heaven, but they obstruct heaven for somebody else to get in. By withholding the accurate word of God, by laying heavy burdens on them that are just religious rites, ceremonial things, God never required. The second woe comes in 14, the stern rebuke again for their greed and covetousness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The second woe is omitted, as I said, by the RSV, and it should concern you. It should trouble you tremendously when any translation would say this verse is not in the original manuscripts. It should bother you. What makes them the scholars now after the text has been handed down? There are too many loose paraphrases and bad translations that are being used today from the pulpit. The NIV, the non-inspired version, you want to read it for just devotion, fine. You want to study from it, I don't, re I don't suggest it. The message is a piece of trash, which Rick Warren uses all the time, and either other pastors also. It's not even worthy to light your fireplace with. Get yourself a good translation. Study from that. Now, the formula here is repeated seven times exactly, with the exception of verse 16 that we just read. And the repeated identity of the scribes and Pharisees is hypocrites, actors, pretenders. Notice still the charges against stated, for you devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. And the word devour simply indicates to take advantage of widows and their material substance. I think of the uh, 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 Christian televangelists and, uh, that, that, that beg and, and they, they, they play on, on people's emotions, especially older people who live on Social Security and, and, they, and they say, pledge $100, $1,000, God will give you back $1,000. Woe to them. Woe to them as they merchandise people. Or as they receive letters from evangelists and they say, you know, as I was praying this morning, God laid you on my heart and, and he showed me that you have much need, this and that. And then all of a sudden the letter turns and says, and by the way, if you could send me $100 for my ministry, that's always the case. God is not a beggar, ladies and gentlemen. He owns the cattle on every hill. He paves the streets of heaven with gold. And if he cannot provide for his church, then we might as well lock the doors and go home. God is no beggar. David said, I've been, I was young once, I've been old now, and I've never seen God forsake his people. Very, very important. They robbed them through spiritual pretense, standing in prayer in the synagogue, the corner of the streets, merchandising them, hearing them out, oh yeah, let me pray for you, and you know, and then the then the real cost comes out. Greed, covetousness. And hucksters know how gullible Christians are. Their judgment would be more severe, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. If you want to rip people off, go to the world. You want to pray on women? Don't come to the church. God help you. Go to the world. 
You don't want to mess with God's people. You're really fighting against God. I wouldn't recommend it. Fifteen, the third woe. The next stern rebuke. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. They were consistent to their evil bent. They had learned to use the system with the mask of deception. The charge is as follows. For you travel land and sea and win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. As you know, the proselyte was a Gentile who converted into Judaism. There were the Greek God-fears who were proselytes of the gate. They were not circumcised, yet they followed all the ritual, the dietary laws and all. Then you had those who were the proselytes of righteousness. They were circumcised. They completed the complete conversion to different ones. And yet here, um, the third woe regards making a proselyte not just after their kind, but much worse. These guys are bad. But when you're bad and you disciple others, you make them twice worse than you. Because they're learning much earlier and much younger. The word for hell here is Gehenna, the ultimate place for all those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. After the white throne judgment at the end of the thousand year reign, the kingdom age. There, the beast, the false prophet, the antichrist, Satan will be bound. And so will every person who ever rejects Jesus Christ. And so this is what these proselytes end up being. Twice worse off, little Tasmanian devils. Verse 16 through 24, you have the placing of distorted values on vows and giving by these individuals. The fourth woe in 16 through 22, the, mis the misunderstanding of vows and sacred things is given in verse 16. The stern rebuke is different from uh, the first and the only time, woe to you, blind guides. So this is the only one with the exception. Doesn't call hypocrites and such. This is the only one. They were spiritually blind, notice, having no spiritual understanding and misrepresenting the word of God. But that blindness came by willfully transgressing and sinning against God, by willfully leaning to their own understanding, by willfully imitating corrupt and evil men. It's a choice that we make. You know, when you're growing up, when I grew up, you know, everybody grows up and they start innocent when they're young and that. But then you start going to school, and when you go to grammar school, now you get to choose whether you're going to hang out with good kids or kind of mischievous kids. You get into junior high school, you're going to have to make a choice now with people that start getting a little funky or whether you're going to toe the line. When you get into high school, you might as well hang it up. If you don't, if you don't swim, you will sink. But every time in every area in life and every level in life, you're going to have to make decisions on who you're going to share your life with, who are you going to spend your life with, who is going to be around you, and are you going to influence them or are they going to influence you? That's the bottom line. These guys here, they're blind guides. They're spiritually 
calloused. And they're guiding others. Now, a literal blind person being a tour guide wouldn't be a very good guide, would they? They both would fall into the ditch, right? Well, spiritually speaking, you follow people who say they're spiritual, but they're not. Then where does it lead you? It leads you away from God, not towards God. Misleading, deceiving people. The charges who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated to perform it. The vows were being measured by the object rather than the heart integrity before God. So you're placing value on these things wrongly. God never taught that, but they laid it on the people's shoulders, right? Jesus says, let it be yes or no. Don't even take vows, Matthew 5, 33-37. God does not require a vow or an oath from you, but if you do give it, then he holds you responsible for it. He says, why don't you just say yes or no? You know, the world always says, no, really, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I'll be there. Why do you have to swear like that? On my mother's grave. The reason you take those out is because you're a liar. And you want to convince them that you're not. You say, you know, I'll be there at 6.30 in the morning. Bell's ringing. That's it. If you're not, then you prove you're not trustworthy. You're not dependable. That's all. Verse 17. The false logic is condemned by Jesus. Jesus castigates their severe, castigates them severely. He says, fools... And blind, the word fool is moros. Can you think of what word we get? Moron. It means dull and stupid involving spiritual things. And some of the things that I hear when I turn on Christian radio once in a while is amazing to me. Or on television. Or when I read some of these new books that come out of the emergent church, which I call the submergent church. It's amazing. How can you even say that? Where are you getting this stuff? It's blasphemous. So contradictory to the word of God. The word blind confirms our lack of spiritual perception. Certainly he's not talking about physical the rational conclusion is stated, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? This is a rhetorical question having only one correct answer. It is the temple that sanctifies the gold. They have it all reversed. In verse 18 through 22, the other example of their spiritual blindness regarding vows is given. In verse 18, Jesus pointed out the inconsistency of their logic as he quotes their words. Listen to him. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated or obliged to perform it. The altar was part of the temple furnishings belonging to God. Yet, 
they dismissed it as nothing. They prioritized the oath taken by the gift that was being given to God. A misplacing of value. And you get into these, these ritualistic and religious and spiritual concepts that are so detached from Scripture. And they give you an appearance perhaps of being spiritual, but when you put it up against the Word of God, it shows that you're a fool. You're far off from the Scripture. You're far off from what God has revealed. This is nothing new. In verse 19, Jesus rebuked and gave the proper value, priority, fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. The word fools again, morals, dull, stupid, involving spiritual things. Blind confirms spiritual perception once again. Jesus is talking about spiritual things. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the word of God, the will of God, the plan of God, the revelation of God. In 20 and 22, Jesus corrects their bad theology and practice regarding oaths. The altar is what sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. The temple sanctifies the oath taken. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Look at 22. The oath taken by heaven is one ascribed to God. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And so they had completely corrupted the word of God. Traditions, interpretation. Remember Jesus said on the throne of the mount, you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, and he demonstrated the word of God was not just literal and to be obeyed outwardly, but he said it's spiritual and God knows what's in your heart. They had evaded all of that. They had ignored it. And so they figure if they didn't commit physical adultery, they were okay. And God said, if you lust with a woman, you've already committed in your heart. And he nailed them completely. Verse 23 through 24, you have the fifth woe. The stern rebuke is again stated by the repeated phrase and formula. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So we're back to the full formula there. The charges for you pay tithes and mint and Annas and come in and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. The fifth will regard sacrifice over obedience. First Samuel fifteen twenty two is better to obey than to sacrifice and to hearken to the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Quite a verse. Quite a verse. The law instructed these. To be tithed, the smallest of spices. Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, Micah 6, 8 speaks about them. They were neglecting and ignoring the more important matters of the law, the spirit of the law, 
justice, mercy, and faith. Justice being righteous judgment regarding the law, not corrupting them. Mercy, elios, means kindness, pity towards mankind. Faith, pistis, it means acting with conviction and trust in God's word. Faith is always related to God's revelation. If you believe something that is not God's word, that's not faith. Only what you believe that God has revealed is called faith. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Micah puts it this way. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. The proper instruction is given by Jesus. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Verse 23. So the whole of God's word is to be obeyed. We cannot be selective in our choosing of what we should obey and what we should not. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines, Song of Solomon 2.15 says. We may not commit the big, but it's these little disobedience, these little things that you mess with, that they end up and they, 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 they grow and they become heavy and they break the wagon's wheels. Look at 24, the vivid evidence of their spiritual blindness, blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. So they, here they are there. They're going to drink some stuff, so they strain this drink with this cloth to prevent a gnat from going there. And yet they're omitting the weightier matters of the law, and it's like eating this huge, unclean animal, the camel. Again, self-righteousness, or he's running down the street, and he's breathing, and all of a sudden a gnat goes in his mouth, and it's down his throat, and he's gagging himself so he can spit it up because he doesn't want to defile himself. But yet he's omitting being fair to the widows and bringing justice to people and all that kind of stuff. That goes on all the time, ladies and gentlemen. That's the potential of every believer if they don't walk in the Spirit. None of us are an exception. So they were giving appearance of being diligent in their obedience, but they were deceptive and self-righteous actors. 25 to 28, you have the confusion over outward and inward holiness. 25 and 6, you have the sixth woe. The stern rebuke continues. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. They were good actors. They um, needed to be born again to repent. The charge is for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Their outward actions, deeds, and rituals presented a very righteous state, while in reality the inward state was seeped in sin. Their sinful hearts were full of extortion, the act of plundering and robbing, and self-indulgence means excess, not restraining oneself from nothing. The heart of man is deceitful, deathly wicked, Jeremiah 79, Matthew 15, 18 through 20. It's from the heart that proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adultery, everything else. The heart is the problem, ladies and gentlemen, not your environment. It's the heart. The environment just facilitates you. The problem's the heart. And so... Uh, these guys, they were just up to their neck and over their head with sin. Verse 26, 
the rebuke and proper instruction is given. Blind Pharisees first clean, cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside of them may be cleansed also. So Jesus rebukes them, um, ordering them to deal with their dirty hearts. Repentance is what he's saying. Then the outside will be lined up. Once you get squared away with your right relationship with God, the vertical axis, then your horizontal plane will be fine. Then you can deal with the outward. Then the outward things that you're doing are lined up with a pure heart by the Lord Jesus Christ that's working in your heart. But if you're not born again, then you can be one thing inside and another on the outside. And that is always a warfare that goes on in the believers. So we have to reckon the old man dead, the old woman dead, and put on the mind of Christ and bring out thoughts in captivity. Put on the armor of God and do good warfare. It's a winnable warfare by trusting Jesus Christ and not ourselves. And so the seventh woe here. Um, the stern woe there, the scribes and the Pharisees. In the charge for you are like white washed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 27. The tombs would be marked out at the feast days, um, Passover, Feast of Weeks, Tabernacles, and others, so that those who travel from long distances wouldn't touch a grave ignorantly or by accident, then they wouldn't be able to worship. So they marked them with white paint, so this way they could see them easily. Um, Numbers 19.16, you get that reference. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the same way. They, they, they looked pretty on the outside with all their black trees and everything else and their prayers and everything. But inside, they were like dead men's bones, full of them. So when people touched them, they would contaminate people. They were like sepulchers. Their self-deception and hypocrisy is declared, even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Do you, do you encourage and motivate people towards holiness or, or sin? Do they motivate you for godliness or sin? That should tell you what you should do. People that encourage you towards God... Pray for them, hang out with them. Those who don't, get away from them. Simple. 29 through 30, the eighth woe. The stern rebuke, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, the charge, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. The quotation is their own words. And they say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Their hearts were insincere, self-deluded by sin. Their self-righteousness was intolerable. The fact that they were better than their fathers is a lie. They were just like their forefathers. Look at 31 through 36, the conclusion, concluding verdict of judgment. The evidence of their lies condemn them. Therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Verse 31. They were delivered over to their depravity. Listen. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. God will try to turn people. But there comes a line where God gives you up to your sin. 
Their self-deception is being right with God. Serpents. Blood of a brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? There are people who are having a blast on their way to hell. I used to be one of them. Until God opened my eyes. But there are people in the world that they just are having a blast. But when they die in their sin, they're going to be at the worst party they've ever been at. Nobody's happy in hell, ladies and gentlemen. If you talk to anybody there tonight, what they would give to hear the word of God once again and decide differently. Their self-deception of being right with God. Remember John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, used this term, brood of vipers. Not very complimentary. People always say, oh, well, you know, you, 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 you just, you, you shouldn't call names and you shouldn't get down. Jesus, meek and mild. Vipers. Wow. Stumble one of these little ones, tie a millstone around your neck and be cast into the sea. Wow. The future would only verify their evil and their guilt like their fathers. Look at 33. Therefore, indeed, I send you as prophets, prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill, crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. This is the, the evidence we have in the book of Acts. We have Stephen. We have James. We have many others. Paul the Apostle killed Christians, incarcerated Christians, chased Christians down, thinking he was doing God's service. They would be liable for the blood of those sent. Look at verse 35. That, that on you may come all the righteous blood on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel and the blood of Zacharias, the son of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. The blood of Abel was the first in Genesis 3. The blood of Zechariah, son of Zechariah, the last in Second Chronicles, verse chapter 24, verse 20 through 21. There seems to be a... A, a contradiction in terms that uh, in Chronicles, it's the son of uh, uh, Jehoiada. There is no way to explain it clearly. There are different options. Uh, it could be a grandson. Uh, and again, Second Chronicles, the last book. So therefore, the first was Abel. And then the last book of the Hebrew is Chronicles. So it makes the difference between the two. But the son of Berechiah maybe wasn't recorded we're not sure one thing is that i have enough things in the scriptures that i fully understand are verifiable the things that i cannot they shouldn't move my faith at all and if i if there's enough stuff that i can verify and i know god can't lie then it shouldn't bother me what i just can't understand completely or even verify what if 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 you couldn't verify. You do need scientific evidence about creation for you to accept um, God's creation and not evolution? I hope not. I believe because God said it. It's not intelligently, rationally explainable, but nevertheless, it's absolute truth. And so... Their judgment is sure. Surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. It wouldn't be long. 37 to 39, he closes with the weeping of Jesus over Jerusalem as he pronounces 
her judgment. The parallel passages, Luke 13, 34 to 35. 37, the broken heart of Jesus. The lamentable words of Jesus for, uh, for the city's treachery to God by murdering the messengers. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Jerusalem is called God's city. He chose it. Second Chronicles 6, 6, Daniel 9, 13, Zechariah 3, 2, and many other places. Their guilt is undeniable. The diligent persistence of God to turn and protect her. Listen to his crying words. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but under her wings. How many times the picture of God is incredible. His patience, his love for his people and his city. Amos 4, 6 through 12. God says, you know, I, 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 I shut up heaven from water and I rained over here and you just went and got it. I, I rained over here and you just collected more and brought home. And it, I did this and you didn't repent. You didn't repent. You didn't repent. Then he said, prepare to meet your God. It wasn't for a hug. It was for judgment. God will be patient with people, but once the line is drawn, judgment will come. And so, the content and willful rebellion and rejection of God. Listen, but you were not willing. Wow. If you're a Calvinist, what do you do with that? If God predestined everything, did he predestine them to reject? What do you do with that? Man has a free will. Don't ever say man doesn't have a free will. God respects your will. Because love can only be meaningful and valuable if it's a voluntary choice. You cannot force people to love you. Not at all. 38 and 39, the rejection of Israel by Jesus now pronouncing judgment um, over Jerusalem. The declaration over judgment has come. See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house, mark it well, not my house. Desolate, solitary, uninhabited, deserted like a wilderness. In 70 AD, Titus destroyed the city. And the temple, he didn't leave one stone upon another as they set fire to the temple. And they scraped all the gold. I was just over there in about three weeks ago. And all those stones are still down in the Cheesemaker Valley, the Trophium Valley. And they're in the same place the Titus soldiers threw over the Temple Mount. Wow. The declaration of future comfort to Israel. God's mercy again. Listen carefully. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This will take place at the end of the great tribulation. The woman Israel, as I said, will flee to the wilderness. God will protect her at Petra. Isaiah 16.1 And the Lord will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look upon him when they have pierced, and God will destroy the armies of the world and establish his kingdom. Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, 14, 3 through 9, and many, many other passages. Jesus' foot will step on the Mount of Olives. It will cleave in two. There will be a water reservoir coming from the throne there. 
out to the Dead Sea where they will revive and have fish like the Mediterranean and the other one out to the Mediterranean. The topography will change. Jesus will judge the nations, how they dealt with the Jew. He will set up the kingdom. He will put the new temple. That's Ezekiel 40 to 48 because there's no way that temple can fit there right now. Everything, the topography is going to change. The kingdom age. The child will lead a lion. The lion will lay with the lion. The lamb will not be in the lion, but next to the lion. All the philosophy of the animal kingdom will be removed again. Yet there will still be sin and death. Isaiah says, if a child dies at a hundred, he dies young. We are reigning with Jesus. We are, we are glorified. Those people who did not take the mark of the beast, they enter the kingdom age. And they have to repent. They have children. They die. They have to be born again just like us. At the end of the thousand years, then God seals it all up. Satan is let loose for one last rebellion. The majority of people will follow him so much for the philosophy that's the environment. No, Satan is bound. Jesus is reigning and people steal their dogs. They don't want God. Interesting. Amazing patience of God. If we only love God as much as he loves us how much better off we'd be. Father, thank you for your grace, your loving goodness. Thank you for tonight, and we pray, Lord, you continue to deal with us, Lord, and for those that are listening over the radio, Lord, and Father, just the uh, Internet, that your hand be upon them. Lord, you would be glorified. Father, if someone here doesn't know you, we pray you would speak to their hearts. As you're praying, if you don't know him, if you've never been born again, then God has brought you here to understand your lostness, your need of Christ. That unless you repent, you will perish. But Jesus loves you so much, he died for you. He tasted death for you. And if you believe that he died in your place, you can call upon him and be saved. This is your prayer if you want to be born again. And he's going to cleanse you and make you brand new right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me in your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.